All right. How's it going, everybody? Welcome to episode four of a little bit about almost everything podcast. Today, we've got a very special guest. Is also the first guest on our show. Uh, my good friend, Duncan Hopewell. We've been friends since uh, college, undergraduate college, which was a number of years. For me, anyway. Yeah, it was a number of years ago that I don't want to talk about. Um, and so uh, we both got the same degree, Global Security Intelligence Studies. Uh, and then Duncan pretty swiftly went into um, computer science and then now is, is in computer security. So, um, but before we get into the computer security stuff, Duncan, I, I want to get your two cents on Ukraine since, you know, both of our degrees are global security intelligence study. It's something that we've always had a passion for. So what, what do you think about the whole thing? Ooh, the whole thing. Um, so I think it's a travesty. I think it's probably, uh, we had such a mediocre response to, uh, Crimea that we kind of invited more of it. And this is, you know, those chickens coming home to roost. Um, I wish that we had better mechanisms to, to try and uh, knock things back, but I'm not sure what those would look like other than starting a more full-scale kinetic war uh, in Europe. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty, uh, I'm upset that it's happening, and, and I think uh, I think Putin shouldn't be in power anymore. That's me. Yeah, it's it's funny because, you know, we, Duncan and I and, and our buddy Chris, who I'm hoping to get on the podcast, I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to pull that one off, uh, given his, his position, but um, we all went to uh, South America twice, and one of our big jokes was about machismo, and, um, <laughs> and yes, it's funny because I kind of caught myself well, I, I caught myself through my wife about this the other day because I was telling my wife, I sent her a text and say, hey, how mad would you be if I signed up for the Ukraine Foreign Legion? <laughs> and she's like, <laughs> you know, lately you've become very obsessed with solving problems with violence and guns. And I don't know how I feel about it. And I was like, huh. You know, it made me take a step back and think, all right, she's right. Not not every situation needs guns. but it, it you know, there's a thing in there where you kind of have to qualify that, where there are some situations that, you know, you're not going to stop Hitler with, you know, words. You, you, you There are cases in history well, where where guns aren't, um, guns are necessary, right? If you go to, to the United Nations Charter, uh, there's, there's Article 41, and Article 41 says that you can set economic sanctions, so on and so forth. And then Article 41 is... Um, the United Nations is basically giving their blessing for military intervention from all nations. So even like in the UN charters, they, they do provide a pathway to, uh, you know, kinetic type warfare. But when you're dealing with the members of the, the UN security council, the permanent members of the UN security council, and you're dealing with nuclear powers, it becomes a, vastly different conversation um 
And so, you know, do you think there is any avenue for the United States to, to militarily intervene into this situation? You know, I thought a lot about that um, when people started talking about no-fly zones. Um, I think that was an extremely effective thing for, like, the Balkans, um, you know, back in the 90s. Um, but the problem is, back then, you know, it was there was such a power differential between the United States, or UN peacekeeping action, rather, um, and um the the people involved in that conflict that like it was very easy to achieve air superiority and you know even if there was like a declaration of war against the united states by you know um well, anybody involved there it's not going to be like a thing <laughs> you know they're not going to be able to do anything with it um but when you start talking about a nuclear armed power like russia you know i think you're absolutely right the stakes are higher and there's not a um, there's not a clean way to over have overwhelming force when you're starting to talk about ha having any kind of armed conflict with a, a country like Russia. Um, so yeah, it, it's a challenge, and I, I don't know what it looks like. Um, I think you know economic sanctions have have proved to be a fairly effective tool uh, this time around, but I worry that Putin's need to posture for his domestic audience, um, whoever that might be, is uh, overwhelmed by, like it's, it's his need to, to posture um, is making him make lots of decisions that I, I wouldn't even expect him to make, you know? Um, so I don't know. I don't know what a what an effective um, strategy is in this case. And and the worrisome thing for me is that there's not like a clear exit ramp for them. Um, so I know that there's currently a, like a de-escalation of tensions um, where they're starting to concentrate in eastern Ukraine and and backing off of Kiev and and that area of the country. Uh, but that was like seems like it was sort of self-selection based on their failures military failures to to take over kiev in the first place and not necessarily based on the economic pressure that the rest of the world was bringing to bear um so yeah i, I think it's it's a challenging situation with no clear answers and no um you know easy wins um and i i just wish that there was like some kind of a clear path forward yeah, absolutely. And and you know, the irony behind him behind Putin being, you know, posturing is it appears that that over half of the people in Russia don't support this incursion. And so sure. who who exactly is he posturing for? And and you know, it's you know, I I presented this question to my class which you know, they're these kids aren't really, you know, GSIS students. They're more domestic law enforcement kids. But, you know, the, the worry is you cut the head off the hydra and two new, new heads grow. But I don't think you have that in, in Russia. Because if you look at the, like, you know, command structure beneath Putin, a lot of those dudes are just suckling at the power teat, if you will. And they're not 
you know, they're not demagogues. They're not born leaders. I, I think that if you remove Putin, you're pretty safe. Um, you know, I think Alexei, what's his last name? Um, you know, the big, the big opponent to Putin. I think he's got Navalny. Navalny. Thank you. Yeah. I think he's got pretty good standing in Russia. So, you know, it's one of those things. What do you do? Do you send out, send in the seals and try and assassinate Putin? Well, you know, that. I mean, in my darker times, I'm like absolutely for that, but I I worry about the knock-on effects of of some kind of an effort, you know, directly against the leader of another country, right? Um, because then, then like, well, how is France going to feel about that? You know, how is how is Iran going to feel about that? How's China going to feel about that? Right. Um, you know, there's there's lots of knock-on effects for for taking that type of action and so you would need more international support like vocal public international support before you could really you know take an action such as that um but i I think you're right i think once putin is out of power and and eventually you know everybody everybody dies eventually um and so once he's out of power it's not clear what the the power structure is going to look like the um, you know I, I think you're right that it's not you, you cut the head off the hydra and another one goes back. I think instead what you're going to end up with is some kind of a power vacuum, and I don't know that um, Navalny, while he has popular support, Russia doesn't follow the um, you know popular mandate necessarily. Like it's it's very. Uh, it's very much a plutocracy or or kleptocracy, and so the people with the money are the ones making the decision. And so, if um, unless Navalny is able to gra- garner their support as well, or um, there's a much larger revolution that takes place following, I, I fully expect one of the oligarchs to, you know step into that vacuum and, and take control. And then we, we may end up with roughly the same, same kind of situation where it's, it's, you know, blind self-interest and not, um, and not an egalitarian approach of like, Hey, we're going to engage with the rest of the world and, and, you know, try to be, be a citizen of the, of the planet earth. Um, you know, a good citizen of planet earth. They're, they're just going to, you know, do whatever makes them the most money. Right. Um, but you know, I think what we also are seeing here, and and um, I think the United States has actually done a, a reasonably good job of fighting against this, and and Russia did not when um, when the revolution took place and the czars were overthrown, and and um, you know Lenin kind of took over. Um, they abolished religion, but they didn't provide a substitution moral framework other than, well, it's just the state, like everything is the state. And now I think those, those chickens are actually coming home to roost for, for them as well of a hundred years of, of amoral leadership. And the irony um, behind that too is is how big the Russian Orthodox Church is 
within the power structure, you know, like it's it's fully has its grasp within the politics of Russia and might as well be a state funded religion, but. There's no official religion kind of a thing. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, is at this point, is the religion driving the state or is the state driving the religion? Yeah. And I think the, the Soviets especially uh, made it so that that the the only acceptance of orthodoxy was was driven by the state. Um, very much like you see in, in China now, too, with with any kind of religion, you know, it has to very much toe the line of the state or, or um, you know, bad things happen. Um, and so by doing that, what they created for themselves was was an amoral state. And so that thereby allows, um, you know, things like a kleptocracy like they have now to to exist and to take root and, and really drive the narrative of, of their country. Um, and so they, you know, no, I don't think anybody predicted that um, initially when, when the Soviet Union came to power, but um, it's kind of interesting to see how that's played out where, you know, might makes right for the entirety of the country like that. Just interesting. So, yeah, yeah. That's a, that's a, a new perspective I, I honestly hadn't thought of or looked at very much. Um, but, but I think you're right. I think once you, once you get rid of religion, if you're not providing some sort of a, you know, replacement for it and your laws aren't adequately providing some sort of substance for, for moral and ethical uh, you know, frameworks, then yeah, it, it doesn't, it, it creates a big problem. And I think, yeah, I think you're right. We're that, that is some of the impact of what we're seeing today. Um, but it's one of the funny things to me is even like when we were in college, you know, Putin wasn't what he is today. Like right after the fall of the wall, Putin was a pretty reasonable dude and and he had massive western support um so he either like really pulled the wool over all of our eyes or he just got power drunk you know and it maybe a little bit of column a and a little bit of column b but you know (laughs) that's always been one of the really interesting things to me about that is is you know he wasn't this kind of a guy for for you know 15 years after the fall of the the soviet union but um you know i guess people change like we all do but um you know we had this really interesting like 10-year period um after the wall came down where like there was a lot of engagement with the west um and there was a lot of like you know sharing of economic um burden and and starting to integrate economies and and all kinds of great like it looked very um it looked like Russia was headed in a direction of being, you know, far more European and more uh, engaged with the rest of the world. Uh, it it just got like it got tainted. Um, and if I had, like if I had to put my finger on anything, 
um, I would say that it's actually this this lack of moral framework that allowed like we had this all this money flowing into Russia all of a sudden. And when you don't have that that moral framework to uh, help you know drive the decision making um, you you run into these kinds of scenarios where where like the people that have the power are the people that have the money, and the people that have the money um, are are really driving what's happening. And so I kind of wonder if um, Either either Putin has gone power mad. You know, it, it's entirely possible that that's that's at least part of the influence. Um, I also read something recently, and I, I wish that I could could cite it um, directly. It might have been New York Times, but my memory is faulty at my age, so don't quote me on that. <laughs> um, where they actually said that that Putin during the pandemic. Um, isolated so much that he essentially had no contact with other humans um, for for you know a couple of years, and uh, and you know from my own experience during the pandemic, like just being holed up and and even having my like tight circle of of family that I that I had with me, like that that did bad things to my mental health, and so I wonder if um, if that extreme level of of keeping people away and and you know not having any like common you know human interaction may have actually had some influence on how he's acting now as well you know he's never like he certainly hasn't been friendly with the u.s in the last 10 years um and and definitely the invasion and uh, annexation of crimea um happened long before the pandemic but especially the way that he's been behaving lately seems very erratic. Um, and so I, I kind of wonder about the, his mental state at this point. Right. And part of that, too, is just it seems like it was not planned very well. Like the, this invasion of, of Ukraine, it's not. I mean, Russia has a good military. They're what are they second or third? biggest military you know kind of second yeah uh, it, it's them and them and china are like neck and neck and then it's the united states but yeah it, and then the problem with china is that they kind of count every single one of their citizens as part of their military so those numbers are always way off but sure um you know you would think that that and, and not only that not only do they have a big military but they have really great military strategists and Man, they just did not think this through as well as you, you'd think that they could have. Mix that with the fact that they couldn't do any of the things that they're doing without massive war crimes, which that's what I'm kind of most fascinated to see what's going to happen out after all of this, um, you know, with, with those war crimes. Um, but it's kind of one of those things for the United States where, you know, if we're pointing a finger at Russia for committing war crimes, there's three fingers pointing right back at us. So, <laughs> you know, how far do we want to take that down the rabbit hole? So, um, yeah, yeah, for sure. That that being said, you know, there's, um, 
there's a big difference i think between the level of you know let's let's call it what it is like there yes there have been uh things that could be considered war crimes that the united states has done particularly in relation to um you know invasion of um afghanistan and and also uh going into iraq um but at no point did we lay siege to an entire city and not allow civilians to evacuate. Right. Right. And so, yeah, you know, yes, there's, there's definitely some, some dirty things in our past and, and, uh, you know, maybe, maybe this is an opportunity to hold ourselves to account on those as well. Yeah. You know, maybe this is, like we look, we maybe we need to do some soul searching on the United States side as well. Like, you know, did our stepping a toe over the line make it acceptable for Russia to just blow right past it as if it doesn't exist? Right, and I also think that the United States, in some cases, whether they we wanted to or not, took responsibility. the The big one that comes to mind is the. Uh, helicopter attack in Baghdad that Chelsea Manning uh, leaked to the press. Mm. Um, you know, I think, again, had that leak not happened, I doubt we'd ever hear about it. But, you know, at least in a lot of those cases, we kind of, we we have at least in the past held ourselves responsible for those kind of things. You know, my bigger concern is is the drone program and how it's been very successful, but it's also been very inaccurate. And there's been massive collateral damage with that, and that becomes problematic. But I just don't see Russia yelling at its soldiers for, you know, targeting civilians in this case. I mean, there's some pretty gruesome videos out there of, of stuff that has happened. Um, but uh, you know, I don't know. I don't know what you, what, what they'll do internally after this whole thing is over when it's finally over. Um, but I, I, I am glad to see that the sanctions are, are being more effective. That's always been one of my big gripes is when it comes to international law, the big problem is, is enforceability sucks because all you really have is economic sanctions. And I think Honestly, what has really helped with the economic sanctions is private companies imposing their own sanctions. And I think that's really what has been uh, the, the thing that helps those sanctions kind of have teeth. Um, that's a really interesting point. So what, what do you see as the biggest effect that's had a, a positive impact um, from the sanctions? Um, that's a good question. I think so. Like the, the two big ones are they're defaulting on a bunch of their loans. Okay. Uh, and that's going to inhibit their trade in the future. Um, but, and, and within that, the, the, the really the most important part with that is how it's inhibiting their three new pipelines. Right, because you got the one going into Germany. There's one going into, I think it's like heading towards Spain-ish, and then there's one to the south that they're hoping to get to India someday. And those, 
being stalled because they're not complete, that's going to be the huge impact. And it's unfortunately probably going to be way more applied to the consumer than it is to the people that are making the profits off of it. But it might eventually cause enough of a backlash between uh, Putin's, you know, BFFs to get him to say, all right, let's just kind of leave and maybe readdress this again in the future. Um, will that happen? I, I, I doubt it, but um, I don't know. At, at the end of the day, the biggest problem is China will still supply them with whatever they need. So if sure. the entire world cuts them off, China has the biggest economy in the world in terms of like manufacturing. Um, and so that's a huge deal because they can get anything they need to from China and China is not going to cut them off. So, you know, I, while the sanctions kind of look good at the beginning now, when you're that close with China, I don't think it's going to matter a whole lot in the end. <clears throat> sure. Yeah, it's it's an interesting uh, point about um, you know China being able to supply Russia with whatever they need, and I wonder if there is any. I, I wonder if there is any kind of a wedge issue that could be used to help kind of pry that loose. Um, and I just don't. I don't know what it is because I, I think they're fairly united against the United States as as a major player and and really that's their only that's their only best play at this point um is, is they have to have the allies in order to to be able to compete and and they're the you know two uh two nations that are able to compete if they work together um so yeah i, I just don't know how you drive a wedge in that relationship yeah i don't know either i mean I, there's there's nothing the U.S. Is, can really do about it because we rely on China so much for our economy. I mean, you have the whole I situation. Mean, I just, a, I just uh, put a down payment anyway on a on a car that's built in China. Right, right, and like <laughs> you know, over the past decade, we've had the massive human rights violations of the Uyghurs. Um, you know, and the United States has just kind of been like whatever, even though it could potentially be a genocide considerably greater than what Hitler did. Um, and so, you know, we're just kind of letting it happen because what choice do we have? Um, and I, I think that's a really bad way to look at that, but in such a globalized world, the unfortunate perspective of that is, you know, if we drive a, a wedge between the United States and China in terms of trade, everything that we buy is going to go up 50%. Um, and so it's just... Yeah, you don't like 7% inflation now. Right. <laughs> just wait until that takes hold. Right. So let's use this as a segue into the next part. So what do you think... What What does a good cyber response look like to you in terms of the Russian invasion? So, 
um, from what perspective? From any I mean, perspective, from my perspective, I mean, we like, we have we have two two kind of major perspectives in terms of like, okay, what can Ukraine do? Because we have all of those um, kind of groups that are working on their own to kind of fight Russia through cyber secure cyber operations. The the ones that the FBI is telling them to stop, um, you know, and then the potential for those operations to be targeted towards the United States. So, you know, what do you think about legitimizing what those groups in Ukraine are doing? And also, what do you think about what are proactive steps that the United States can take to help ensure that our network is safer? Uh, and to also help, um, you know, maybe with some subversive counterattacks. So the trick, the tricky thing with um, cyber anything, you know, whether you're talking about defense or or offense, is that um, attribution is extremely tricky. So when you start talking about things like um, how do we shore up our defenses in, in the United States, um, you know, knowing which groups you're going up against is actually very key. There's a uh, concept in cybersecurity called uh, TTPs. That's uh, tactics, techniques, and procedures. And those are the kinds of things that it helps to know your adversary and what, what TTPs they're actually using in order to make sure that your defenses meet those particular, um, you know, things that they're using in order to, to get access to whatever they want to get access to. Um, so the challenge is, well, who's, who's actually coming against us? How do we know that? In the United States, the NSA has some incredible capabilities. But what we don't have is something like what China has, such as the Great Firewall, where where you know China is able to essentially inspect all of the the web traffic that comes across, um, uh, comes into the country, or t- goes out of the country. So, because we don't have that kind of a lens um, in the United States, like the NSA does not have that capability. So they don't know every packet that flows across uh, across the wire to hit um, hit something in the United States. Um, so they're they're I don't want to say hampered because there's a lot of um, you know <laughs> human rights to privacy and and lots of other things that go into that. But the United States response is hampered because the United States itself, from a defense perspective can't do that much um instead what they're going what we're going to have to do is rely on um the intelligence gathering capabilities of the nsa and and other agencies to communicate with private uh, private enterprise effectively um you know here's here's the enemies that are that are trying to harm our networks Here's how they do things, and here's what your responses should should look like. I think you can see a lot of success uh, in the last couple of years with the way that CISA particularly has worked with private enterprise 
But what we don't have is a good mechanism currently um, for more of the spooky agencies um, to to work with private enterprise as well to shore up our networks. So what does that look like when it when it plays out? Um, let's think about you know Russia. We know wants to get access to critical infrastructure in the United States. Like they they want to be able to if there's ever a kinetic war or even you know Putin feels like it, um, they want to have a light switch that they can flip in order to turn off the power um, you know to major metropolitan areas in the United States. So if the NSA and, and other agencies are are able to have some insight into what the Russian capabilities actually are, they need a mechanism to be able to communicate that to. You know, here in, in Texas, we have ERCOT. Well, ERCOT needs to have um, communication from the United States government on what they need to protect and how and, and what um, the TTPs are from that, those particular adversaries to, um, to defend against. Um, but I think, so that's challenge number one is just we need to have a better pipeline, right? Uh, challenge number two is the um, historically, especially since so much of our our utility is is uh, private enterprise uh, in the United States or local government as well. There's not a lot of um, investment that's been made into building the capabilities of these, you know, local electrical co-ops. Um, being able to secure their own networks because they're they're a you know one million dollar a year little electric co-op in the middle of Kansas or whatever. Um, so when you're when you have that low of a budget, being able to shore up your cyber defenses is actually an extremely difficult task because in order to get the kinds of defenses you need, you have to really invest in your infrastructure and you have to have people that know what they're doing and and all of those kinds of things. Um, so I, I think there's some challenges there that, that we don't have a really great solution yet um, and being able to communicate, number one, and then also generate the, the um, investment in the actual cybersecurity infrastructure for these private enterprises that historically just have not, not been able to you know, keep up with that kind of stuff. So I think that's that's part number one of like protecting the United States against you know Russia is is getting those two things solved. Um, in regards to Ukraine uh, cyber mercenaries, let's call it. There's been some really interesting stuff that's come out of that. Um, the Conti ransomware gang basically came out on on the side of the russian uh government and said we're we're fully going to support this we're going to you know hack a bunch of people because we want to support the the russian effort of taking over ukraine well the problem with making that statement was not everybody in the conti ransomware gang is russian and in fact, there's probably some Ukrainians that are also in the, in that particular gang, which led to a giant uh, um, leak of their communications, which has been really fascinating to to see the things that have, have come out of it. 
Um, so, Bryce, you were talking about the uh, the globalized economy. Well, um, criminal economies have also globalized. And so when you start having um, these criminal groups decide that they're going to come down on the side of one of one state actor or another, it, it causes those kinds of issues as well. Um, so I think that's been really kind of fascinating to, to see that piece of it play out. Um, that being said, one of the challenges of, of inviting a mercenary force like, like Ukraine did is, you know, when you have a standing army, you have a mechanism for control of what they're doing. But when you invite, uh, when you invite, you know, these cyber mercenaries to, to just like wreak havoc in, in Russia, you don't necessarily what they're, know what they're going to target. Um, and so a great example of that is um, there's actually a um, maintainer of a, an open source library, or several open source libraries um, who got mad because Russia invaded Ukraine. And what he did was basically uh, rewrite his open source code that is relied on by thousands and thousands and thousands of applications around the world so that if his software was used within Russia based on uh, its GOIP location, then it would start overriding all of the files inside that particular application with, uh, with smiley faces or hearts or something along those lines. <laughs> Um, and I, I'm, uh, you know, uh, on one hand, I'm, I'm here for it. Like, I, if you're going to do something destructive like that, it might as well have hearts, uh, heart emojis in the files. But at the same time, um, what the knock-on effect of what happened was, um, you know, GOIP is not 100% accurate. And so you end up with collateral damage. Um, one of the effects of that collateral damage was actually a aid organization that was actively trying to help Ukrainian refugees also got impacted by that effort. Um, and so it's really, you know, on one side, like, you know, it's great for the lulls, but at the other side, you know, it had this really nasty negative impact. <clears throat> and I don't know what the, what the positive impact was. Um, you know, I, other than bringing attention to the issue, but I think if if anybody's paying attention to the news in the last month and a half, like they already know what's going on. Um, so yeah, I, I I just I don't know what an <clears throat> what an effective cyber mercenary attack really looks like in light of that. So like we have. I mean, we have Anonymous, and they've come out and allegedly made a couple of statements on this whole situation. And Sure, and they've defaced a few websites and, you know, done some stuff like that. I mean, it all seems pretty amateur hour, if you ask me. I mean, I'm not shitting on, on Anonymous, so please don't come attack me. Um, but, <laughs> like, you know, it's just, like it's good because this is one of those times where if you, if you look at the history of anonymous and, and what they were really trying to do, this is one of those times where they could really step up and make a real difference. 
but it's also a time where they can need to put their money where their mouth is, you know? Um, sure. And I, I just, I haven't seen that yet, but I, I also haven't been following it super closely. Um, but it, it's just kind of fascinating, you know, because you're going to learn a lot about these types of organizations that are, you know, cyber freedom fighters or whatever they want to call themselves. Um, and, and it'll, it'll create a new perspective on them. I think once this is all done and over with, at least, at least within the kind of academic side of this, you know, cause you kind of have to bifurcate like what's general populace going to say versus what's academia going to say. Um, but you know, it, it is something that I think is, is really fascinating to look at. So you talked about, uh, the United States is defensive capability. So what do you think in, in, I don't know how much, you know, you, you know about this, um, probably more than I do, but what, what about the United States offensive capabilities to kind of impact the cyber network in Russia? I mean, you know, I think you had sent me that article on, on how they nailed down that, you know, Delvaney got, poisoned because you could track everywhere the KGB was. So their security network is really, really bad. So what kind of, you know, offensive capabilities do you think uh, would be effective for the United States to use? So, and I think that's where you run into some of the same challenges. Uh, we, We talked a little bit about morals a little while ago. And how you know Russia has has kind of eschewed the ideas of of morals even existing, um, which is why they're they're willing to do the things that are happening in in Ukraine. But when it comes to like what could we do effectively in the cyber realm from an offensive capability to Russia, you know, if we start, let's say we took down a bank or several of their banks. You know, who is that actually going to impact? Right. Um, so, yeah, we could do something along those lines. But let's, let's limit it to, you know, non-civilian targets. Um, so we have, we have some morals. So we're not going to go after, you know, um, civilian targets like that. Okay, what, who are we going to go after? We're going to go after the KGB. And we're going to shut off the lights in the KGB offices. You know, what, what have we what have we really accomplished at that point? Like we, we've done something similar to what, what anonymous has done, which is deface some websites and make made, um, you know, Russia look stupid, which, which I'm not saying it, it doesn't have value. I, I think that also has value and, and, uh, can certainly give a morale boost to the Ukrainian people when, when those kinds of things happen. Um, so I do definitely think that there's some value there, but, um from a cyber capability thing you know i think the the best approach we could do from offensive side is get internal documents and make them publicly known but how do you do that legally without violating international like how do you do that without violating international law because at that point what you've done is essentially attacked a military target 
and stole information from him from them and then you're publishing it you know in the new york times or whatever um so you know i think there's a lot of potential uh, but i don't know how you exercise that potential without having some kind of a um you know war footing that you're willing to be on if that makes sense yeah i mean it it goes back to the to the fundamental question of you know can a cyber attack be qualified as an act of war you know and i think the talon manual 2.0 is a little bit more definitive in saying that yes there are times where it can arise to that but you know in, in what you're talking about at one point both of us dreamed of being some sort of james bond super spy and that's <laughs> you know that's what human does human does that all the time they go in they steal information and they publish it or they use it or they, you know, make turn double agents or whatever it is. So there's, you know, I, I think there's precedence for that and that, you know, that's what we've been doing sure. the entirety of the Cold War. Russia did it to us. We did it to Russia or the Soviets rather. So, you know, I, I think there's at least some footing to say, all right, yeah, if we do this, it's just the evolution of espionage more than anything else yeah and i could definitely buy that um i think the tricky piece of that though is often when you are subverting defenses within the cyber realm you're actually breaking things um and i think you know yes you're not breaking breaking things kinetically but you're breaking things you know bitwise um, and when you're breaking things, uh, like if you, you know, once you start breaking things, that, that starts to get closer to um, the definition of a kinetic war. Like in, in, in meat space, if I, you know, break your, uh, break your tank, like that's kind of a, you know, declaration of war, right? If I break your router, is that a declaration of war? I don't know. Um, and so I think it's really tricky like, yeah, I, I can definitely buy the argument that you're making, but at the same time, I think it's a little more nuanced that, um, like, equipment is going to be damaged, right, in order to be able to get access to things. Sometimes it's just, you know, simple misconfigurations or you, you um, socially engineer the receptionist at... Um, at in the red square or whatever and you uh you get access to things that you shouldn't have had that would be human intelligence though that's not necessarily straight up cybersecurity, you know things but if i'm like if i'm hacking the router chances are i'm actually somewhat breaking that router in order to to get access to the things that i i need to get access to um so it seems a little trickier than just calling it espionage or even just the evolution of espionage. Um, and there's lots of things that are, that are absolutely like, you know, declaration of war. If I, you know, let's say the United States goes and, and um, dis, I don't know, uh, does a, a BGP attack and makes it so that 
the Russian internet is not routable anymore. You know, is that a declaration of war? I mean, that's a good question. The Talon manual is a little bit more in the line of, at its vaguest sense, they say it could qualify as that that situation could qualify as a as, as a by an act of war because an act of war is really any intentional violation of sovereignty. I mean, that's right. within the United States, we have a different definition of war. So let's look at the international definition, which is basically any breach of sovereignty. Um, and so they kind of go along this line of, all right, if you're attacking, um, you know, the government in a non-proportional way that can rise to the potential of an act of war, but then again, proportionality kicks in again to where they can only respond in kind. So they can't launch a nuke because you hacked into the FSB. Um, but if you were like the, the one place where it's, it's much more clear cut. If we hack into their, you know, one of their nuclear power plants and override the power plant, um, and overheat it and blow it up. That's pretty obvious declaration of war, but it's all that gray area of in between. That's just, we're not going to know until it happens. And it's one of those things that we don't really want to find out. You know, we don't yeah, want no, to know the answer first, right? <laughs> nobody wants to be first and, and causing a kinetic war because of a cybersecurity attack. Right. Exactly. All right. Um, so let me let me ask you this question since we're we're coming up on an hour. We got about ten minutes left. Let me ask you this question. Um what do you think the United States needs to improve cyber cybersecurity from a regulatory perspective? From a regulatory perspective. The next question I'll ask you is from like a practical perspective, but I want to see what your opinion sure. is on regulations first. And so regulation rarely equals security. Um, and that's, that's kind of the challenge that I, I face. Um, and we actually, we go through that at my, my day job. Um, you know, there's, there's some of our, um, some of the financial aspects of, of where I work falls under uh, one of the state laws uh, for finances. And essentially, the regulation that we, we have is, is saying, thou shalt have an application security program. And so I am the application security engineer. My existence on the team satisfies that requirement. Um, so, you know, we, we do have some regulation, but, but it could be argued that that's ineffective, but at the same time, if you make it more detailed and prescriptive, then it also has to be able to keep up with changes in technology. And so the challenge I think, and, and I, I don't know what a great a great regulation to to improve cybersecurity in the United States would look like because it, either it's overly broad 
and and it looks like what I what I just explained, where you know thou shalt have an application security program. Great, we hired a guy. Done. We've checked the box. Um, or it's it's very prescriptive of exactly what you have to have, and then and then it's twenty years out of date. And so I don't know that there's actually a regulatory instrument that would um, would really improve the the capability of of defending the United States, um, private enterprise or otherwise. But I think we have lots of things in place, and and not many of them are are super effective. I think instead a a great way to approach it and and maybe this is is better um from a regulation standpoint rather than creating regulation create incentives for having good good cybersecurity so you know give um and, and again i i don't really know what that looks like um but if you can make it more attractive to the business um, to have good cybersecurity, that's going to be far more effective, I think, than than you know laying the hammer down when um, when things go wrong or or aren't in place. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, second question, from you know a practical perspective, being somebody that works in this every single day, you know, what are things that you know, you can talk about both of these or one or the other. What do you think either private industry or the United States can do from a practical perspective to help increase security for the private sector? Yeah, so this is actually a debate that I have uh, almost once or twice a week um, with some of the people that I work with. And what we've landed on is that in many of uh, American enterprises, you know, the almighty dollar and, and profitability has been driving, um, driving the economy. And that's not necessarily bad, right? But what it's led to is IT organizations being thought of as back office cost centers. And that's, that's actually wrong-headed um, from a business perspective in addition to a, a cybersecurity perspective. So in reality, IT organizations are essentially the backbone of modern business. But it's taken a really long time for um, the modern U.S. enterprise to actually recognize that that's the case. I think over the last couple of years that's really reached a tipping point where people are starting to realize that no like if we if we invest in our internal infrastructure we gain value for the business and therefore for our customers by by doing that but it's it takes a really long time to change that that culturally and you have to change that culturally in every every enterprise around the United States to be able to get there once that's changed, though, what you see start to build up is, is a really good understanding of business risk as it applies to 
um, security issues or just IT um, in general. And so I think, um, you know, if there's one thing that, that we could change, uh, particularly for private enterprise, um, to be able to improve cybersecurity, it's just the attitude of, of IT is just a back office cost center, so we need to keep costs low so that, that we maintain profitability. Um, yeah, that's the, that's 100% what I, what I think most of cybersecurity issues stem from. Yeah, I, I totally get that, too, because that's, like, one thing that I try and get across to a lot of people from a different perspective of you want to pay an attorney lots of money to help set up your business, to be on retainer, because if you put that money in early, it will save you so much money later. And... uh <laughs> You know, having a legal department is important and you want to have a good legal department. You know, that that saves you money. I know those people are expensive, but it saves you money. So, you know, it's kind of one of those weird things where the the cost analysis of those kind of positions are not understood well by a lot of middle and upper managers because all they do is look at bottom lines. Um, And so they've made some critical errors in how they analyze certain parts of it. Like, yeah, having a bad quarter where you're paying employees more money makes you more profitable in the long run. So... No, yeah, the, and that's definitely a perspective that, that will have to be overcome in order for us to have, you know, stable enterprise in the United States is you can't be thinking about like we just finished the first quarter of 2022. That's great, but we need to be thinking about the first quarter of 2025, right. <laughs> you know, right now and be, be thinking strategically about where we want to be, you know, three and five and 10 years from now, rather than, um, rather than where we want to be, you know, at the end of June you know, this year. So that's definitely a a perspective thing that I've run into quite a bit. Um, You know, the effect of, of not investing in your IT infrastructure too, is you end up creating what's called tech debt. Tech debt is like, um, you know, when you don't like do the dishes at your house, like if you don't do the dishes then they start to sack up. And then they start to smell. And then the food gets really stuck on. And if you leave them long enough, you get rats. Or you get, you know, ants coming in the window and, like, you know, bad things happen. And if you had just done the dishes, you know, right away, it wouldn't have been as, as uh, problematic. So when, when you let tech debts stack up, it has, has essentially the same effect of um, when I don't do my patching and I don't, you know, reevaluate whether my um, authentication process and my my um, authorization processes are are good. If I don't um, update my my internal applications with you know new libraries, um, then you you accumulate all of these issues and it's much much harder to fix when you have ants coming in the window and rats and all the food is stuck on, um, it's much harder to fix then than it would have been if you just kept up with it as, as things, things came. 
but again, like if you can delay delay for an expense for the quarter, then your profitability looks better for that quarter. So, you know, we I think that's that's kind of the perspective that has to change um, for there to be good IT in general and, and especially cybersecurity because it's it's so much based on the reduction of tech debt. Um, there's a saying in the industry that, that tech debt equals security debt, um, and I think that's that's very true based on the experience I have. Yeah, I I couldn't agree more with that. All right, well, I have two more questions for you, and then I'll I'll let you go. Sure. That have absolutely nothing to do with any of this. So, <laughs> so both of us are are relatively new fathers. I mean, we're, you know, I've only been a father for four years. Yeah, yeah. So four years. I'm I'm at coming up on six. So. You know, what's, what's been the best part of being a dad and what's been the most challenging part of being a dad? That's a great question. Um, so let me talk about the, the most challenging first. Okay. <clears throat> the most challenging for me is being able to put myself in their shoes where they don't understand how the world works yet, where my kids just, they don't, they don't get it. So, for example, my kids are in the backseat of our van, we're driving somewhere today, and they have their little water cups with them. And then they start playing a game of, we're gonna take a bunch of water into our mouth, and then we're gonna spit it out, and it's gonna be super fun. Um, well, what that leads to is them being like soaked by the time we get wherever we're going and there's water like all over the van and, and that kind of stuff. Um, and then they're upset because like their shirt is wet or, <laughs> you know, that, that kind of stuff. And so it's the, uh, for me, it's like understanding that they, they just don't understand that cause and effect relationship yet. Um, and being able to like empathize with that um is is certainly a challenge that being said when i get to see them make that connection that is absolutely the most rewarding experience for me like getting to hear that um you know toby um has hang on just a second Yeah, sure. Yeah, sure. So, yeah, getting to hear that my, my son has, like, figured something out, um, you know, on his own. The first time that he, he figured out how to put poop in the potty. Like, that was a glorious day. <laughs> yep. <laughs> you know, on it really is. Levels. It really is. <laughs> on so many different levels. Um, but, like, you know, just the pride of, of, like, man, my son just figured that out. He's ready to go. He's ready to face the world. Um, you know, that's really, really pretty great. Um, yeah, just just getting the, to watch them, like, experience how the world works and, like, make those connections and, and watch the light bulb moments happen um, has been really rewarding. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. All right. Well, thank you so much, Duncan. I really appreciate you making the time to come on the show. I know it's very late for both of us, especially since we are parents and we go to bed early now. Uh, but anyways, thank you so much. 
um uh, well we'll have you I back on in the future i don't know <laughs> yeah that too but we'll have you on and again on the future but uh thank you and thank you all for listening this has been episode four of a little bit about almost everything have a good day everybody